everyone, I'm Amadal Yakbar, and this is See Something, Say Something. It's the second week of Ramadan, and this week we're going to be continuing our Spotlight series by talking to Eamon Mahayuddin, who is an anchor at MSNBC. And have these like very incredible, meaningful iftars, and everyone would kind of talk and laugh and rejoice about the fact that they made it through another day in the middle of a war zone. It's the second week of our Ramadan series, and like we did last week, we have another guest who is in the spotlight nearly every day. Eamon is an anchor for MSNBC. He hosts The Breakdown every Sunday, where he goes deep on the week's news. He's also a co-host for Morning Joe First Look, Monday through Friday, which is a morning show. Welcome, Eamon. Thank you very much for having me. And Ramadan Mubarak. Ramadan Mubarak to you. So you're on TV like... Most days of the week. Yeah. It's and very early in the morning. Do you get enough time with your family and friends during Ramadan? Oh, man. Uh, the short answer to that is no. No, I don't. <laughs> you, you can never have enough time with family and friends, especially uh, during a month like Ramadan. Um, but, you know, we're in a crazy news cycle right now. Of course. And, uh, and I always kind of feel very privileged to just be able to witness the history as it unfolds and kind of covering it. Yeah. So um, I take it all in, in stride. The good uh, and the bad. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned the news cycle because I wanted to actually play a little news game with you. Okay. You know, Uh-oh. here at here at BuzzFeed <laughs> News, we talk a lot about and joke about fake news. Yep. Um, so I prepared a little game for you, which is basically a fake news quiz. So I have two headlines. Um, are real, and they're about, like, Muslims or the Arab world or the Middle East, and one that I just completely made up. Okay. So, and they're each centered <laughs> around a topic. I'm going to read you all three of them. Okay. And you're going to have to tell me which one you think is the fake one. All right. Sound good? Yeah. Um, okay. So, the first topic is opinion pieces. Two of these are real opinion pieces, and one I just made up. All right. Number one, opinion. Muslims deserve human rights. Number two... I'm Muslim, a woman, and an immigrant. I voted for Trump. Number three, an Iraq war won't destabilize the Middle East. Which one is the fake one? Uh, okay, so uh, say, say the last one again. Um, an Iraq war won't destabilize the Middle East. I think that's a real one. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, and what was the second one? I'm a Muslim, a woman, and an immigrant. I voted for Trump. I think that's a real one as well. There you go. Muslims (laughs) deserve human rights is not the real one. Um, The other two are from uh, WAPO and the New York Times. Yep. All right. Uh, Number two, the topic is hummus. Okay. Okay. Uh, Number one, hummus milkshakes are coming, ready or not. Okay. Number two, hummus, the trendy chickpea salsa that's taking over your feed. Or number three, hummus in danger, why climate change could spell the end for a beloved Middle Eastern dip. I would say, again, two and three are are real news, and number one is fake news. I hate to say it, but the hummus milkshake is no real. Way. really? It is actually a real thing that's coming wow. your way. <laughs> um, by uh, Hummus and Pita Co. Um, I got a lot a of milkshake. Yeah, which I don't know why you would ever want to drink chickpeas. Uh, yeah. I mean, listen, we drink a lot of other things. <laughs> it makes sense, right? Uh, the fake one was hummus, the trendy new chickpea salsa. <laughs> Uh, that's oh, I should have picked feet. up on the salsa bit. That's yeah. kind of that was the misleading one. When I made this up, it was inspired by somebody calling Kanafa a dessert pizza, which I don't think is very fair to Kanafa at all. What is a pizza anyway? Uh, true, I guess it has cheese. It has wheat. 
Um, and then our third topic is Muslims, babies, and sex. Wow. <laughs> um, okay, number one, the sexual misery of the Arab world. Number two, meet the polygamous Muslims who are setting up shop in Utah. Or number three, one in ten babies in England is a Muslim. Those practicing the religion could soon outnumber actively worshiping Christians. Wow. Which one is the fake one? I feel like all three of those could be real. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Um, I'm going to go with the Utah polygamists. Ah, there you go. Look at how good you are. That yeah. was fake. That yes, was I fake just completely right. made that up. Okay. Makes sense. <laughs> all right. You did great. That was That was pretty good. So I want to hear about um, your TV show. You have m- many of them. And what I, what I find so fascinating about this, you know, I'll, we have a lot of video components here and a lot of writers. And we have a lot of writers with, you know, Arabic or Muslim names. Yeah. And there's like a lot of focus when you have a name like that. And for you, you're like probably for a lot of folks, if they're, you know, tuning into cable news, you're probably one of the only one of the few brown faces and certainly one of the very few Arabic names that people encounter as a TV watcher. What is that like? Um, well, you know, there's an element of pride. I mean, I, I certainly am very proud of my identity and my heritage. Um, I think it speaks volumes uh, to an organization like MSNBC that they have diversity and they celebrate diversity and they try to get people from all walks of life. Um, certainly, I'm not the only Muslim and, and I'm not the only uh, you know, Arab who works at, sure. at MSNBC or NBC. And I think that's that's a great thing. So uh, I, I'm very proud of it. And I don't think of it on a day-to-day basis in the sense mm-hmm. that this is, you know, defining who I am. I think that it's important for Americans of all walks of life to be able to watch the news and see news organizations and newsrooms that reflect the diversity of America. And, and that's how I view my role in that in that process. Right. I guess part of what I, why I brought it up is because, at least from our side as like an online news org, like when we're on Twitter, we get called out for things that and, and targeted if you have like an Arabic name or, yeah. or, or you know you appear to be of a Muslim background in a way that's um, I think reflective of like an increasing trend of like the alt right yeah. taking aim at Muslim Americans. So I, I'm wondering if you like you just put that away or because it seems like it's something you would have to deal with as well. I think when you work in a public medium, um, which is, you know, out there and you put your name out there and you put your face out there and your storytelling out there, you have to um, accept not for good or for bad, but you just have to accept that in this current climate, you are going to get trolled. You're going to get all kinds of criticism, some of which is very valid um, and it helps you learn and grow from. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's obviously reflective of uh, deeper sentiments that people may have that may actually be bigoted or racist or in some cases Islamophobic. So um, I try not to pay attention to it. um, And I try to take the serious comments um, with a little bit of a grain of salt so I can learn how to get better if there is valid criticism. But for the most part, things that are just kind of very generic criticism of who you are based on your identity and where you're from or your heritage or your religion, I tune that out very easily. It's not hard for me to kind of Mm. ignore it and, and just move on. So you talked about also how uh, the news cycle nowadays is moving very quickly and you're on a daily show. What has it been like covering the Trump era? Well, I mean, it's definitely challenging because of the fact that there are so many moving pieces um, and so many different elements to covering this administration. Um, 
you know, it's very complex. You are dealing with an environment where um, facts sometimes are constantly being challenged and questioned, and you have to really try to hold truth to power. Mm. Um, I think in some ways it's reinvigorated journalism in the United States a little bit more when you see so many kind of dubious claims that are out there, what what that has empowered um, the world of alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway uh, calls it. And so it's a challenge to kind of keep abreast with all of the moving pieces on so many different storylines because you have obviously the president with all the investigation and what's happening with the special counsel. You have all of these new international issues, whether it's the White House withdrawing from climate change, TPP, the Iran deal. Um, all the challenges in the Middle East with Syria. So these are very historic times. These are unprecedented times in terms of events that are happening around the world. It certainly feels that way, at least from my perspective. Um, so I think there is a real challenge to not only cover the events as they are unfolding, but also to find a way to step back and mm, take a mm-hmm. big picture approach, making sure that you're contextualizing all of these events in the right framework. Right. I, you know, that thing you said about like, it's a very invigorating time to be a journalist. One thing that I found interesting is the way people have um, compared, like, Trump's attacks on journalists to, like, attacks on journalists during, like, the Arab Spring. Yeah. Uh, you yourself were actually, I think, detained, correct, during yeah. some of your coverage of that. No. Do you feel like there's any weight to that that argument there? Like, what what do you see as some of the parallels or differences Well, on the Trump administration versus, like— I, I don't—I personally don't like to make that comparison just because the— media environment in the United States is so much more mature Mm -hmm. than it is in other uh, countries where there are authoritarian leaders. I understand why people make the comment uh, because of the tone that is coming out of the White House um, with criticism against the media. But I also don't think that it's necessarily valid criticism. There's too much what appears to be um, this kind of hatred to what is a sacred sentiment in the United States to have a freedom of the press, the constant labeling of fake news, the attacking mm-hmm. of journalists by names, the kind of derogatory comments when you have the president, the most powerful person in the world, referring to individual journalists with these kind of derogatory insults. I think that gives people uh, and certainly gives journalists chills. But I don't think that the overall climate in the United States is... Uh, symbolic of or a representative of the kind of authoritarian governments and countries that I've covered um, in, especially in the Middle East, where journalists are constantly rounded up, harassed, intimidated, threatened, mm-hmm, killed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're not there. Like, there's no comparison between where American right. media is and where media is in, in the Arab world. But I do understand why people feel that this is a trying time for journalists in the United States because media are constantly under attack from the centers of power. Uh, And I think that's kind of new to uh, ordinary folks in the United States to hear this constant barrage of attacks against media and journalists. Right. I want to also talk a little bit more about that bit where you said um, speaking truth to power in these formats. Um, You know, for me as somebody who has not often felt um, reflected in the media that there weren't like a lot of folks that look like me or articulated points um, that were similar to what my community is saying. Yeah. What does that look like for you? Like, what are some some moments where you felt like you had to speak up? Well, I mean, I think most recently in the last year and a half or so, the, the Trump administration, I think I would see sometimes these reports where, you know, the facts would suggest something as being a hate crime. Muslims were clearly mm-hmm, targeted. Mm-hmm. A mosque would be destroyed in some cases, like we saw in North Carolina. Um, you know, three young Muslim Americans were killed. 
and there is maybe a slow response and a slow response from the government and elsewhere in society to condemn what is an apparent hate uh, hate crime. So I think in situations like that, I feel the need to sometimes raise my hand in the newsroom and elsewhere and say, guys, this this is a pretty serious story. And if had it been another group or had it been another uh, type of attack, we would have a different uh, tone in the coverage. There was no Je suis Somalia for these victims, no hashtags. Our monuments and buildings didn't light up in the colors of the Somali flag, no national mourning or tributes. Just two American families now living with the grief of the loss of their loved ones. That will do it for this week. There's also examples of sometimes overseas where I think in international news, um, you know, countries that may be allied with the United States when they engage in certain policies, we don't necessarily look at them in the same way. And so we have to sometimes raise up and say, again, guys, there's a humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in certain country and it's not getting enough coverage. And we have to make sure that we keep the spotlight on that, even if the perpetrators of certain acts are allies of the United States. And you've done a lot of also reporting on the Israel-Palestine issue, which yeah. is something that is, I think, a real challenge to figure out like how to – I don't think there's any consensus on what a unbiased look looks like <laughs> on, that, on that issue. Um, and especially as uh, like a person of Arab background, it seems like there's a lot of assumptions around what the reporting looks like even before something comes on, on camera. So um, how, do you, how do you deal with that specific issue and reporting on that? Well, I try to, I mean, obviously the most guiding principle in covering a story that is as sensitive as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is to try to um, stick to the facts Mm -hmm. and try to report the facts as accurately as possible. That's one. Two is to try to contextualize the events that are happening so that they don't just happen in a vacuum. Um, I think one of the biggest misunderstandings about that conflict is there's this tendency to just to simplify issues Mm -hmm. and try to see things as black and white. And I think they're much more nuanced. Right much more um, complex than how we tend to cover them in the U.S. Uh, So I I, I try to bring a little context to the story. I try to bring a lot of historical knowledge. I try to kind of pull people back away from a singular event and say, where's the trend? Where's the trajectory? And why is this happening? Um, Incidents don't just happen in vacuum. You have to understand the Middle East obviously has a very complex history. And if you don't uh, contextualize uh, events in a proper setting, things can be easily manipulated and appear a very different way than right. they are actually on the ground. I mean, I think one of the times I, I really, like, came to know of, of you is because you had reported on, on these Palestinian children. Yeah, Chris, we were actually uh, making our way from our office back to our hotel in between some of our work throughout the day, and we came across these boys who were playing at the time. They were playing in a side street just across the street from our hotel. We stopped. I just joked around with them a little bit. We kicked the ball around for maybe just a few minutes and then walked on back to you our know, hotel. A little bit later, they died due to shelling yeah. um, from the Israeli Navy, and that was seen as like something that was uh, a little bit controversial and like shocking even though I grew up with my community having a lot of sympathy for you know Palestinian children who were who were dying and it didn't always feel like it was reflected in media. You know, we heard two loud explosions a few minutes after that. Uh, I looked out my window, I saw a cloud of black smoke billowing just down into the uh, Gaza seaport and I ran downstairs and uh, our producer um, started seeing these kids that were being triaged and treated on the terrace of our hotel. Then they were So to me that was like a moment where it felt like the facts were there and it was difficult for people to um, bring it up. But it, I appreciated that there was somebody who reported it and, you know, I thought reported on it in a fair way. Well, I think anytime you're covering a conflict, it's always challenging. 
So, uh, and certainly a conflict like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict where emotions run high on both sides. Um, both sides certainly feel that they have legitimacy in their actions. And again, I think what made that story so powerful and so unique and resonated around the world was that it captured a moment where everybody can relate to four young kids mm-hmm. who were, uh, despite the fact that they were living in a war zone and a besieged area, were trying to enjoy just whatever moment of safety they could have and ultimately paid the ultimate price for it. And at the end of the day, that story, I think, reminds people that we can't lose sight of the fact that there are civilians who get caught up in all of these conflicts. You know, at 20,000 feet, there will always be politicians and leaders who can justify every single thing that happens. But at the end of the day, it's ordinary civilians that pay the price of so many of these uh, disastrous policies. So I think I think one of the reasons why it, it happened to be that we were able to witness this tragedy hmm. and follow the story from the moment those four kids died. I mean, I remember I was with uh, our camera crew and our producer from the moment the shelling happened until the moment those kids were buried into the ground. And we obviously documented that and we reported it as is. And I think that's why it was so powerful because hmm. in just a blink of an eye, these four uh, kids and their respective families, their lives were forever shattered and ruined. And I don't think anybody at that level cares about the policy or the excuse or some of the arguments that both sides make. But at the end, you witness the humanity and inhumanity of war. And that's why I think it resonated with so many people. And, and people really kind of were moved by the fact that like, hey, this this is just not right. What is happening is not right. And so you're also reporting on, on Syria as well. Is yeah. that correct? Um, to me, the Syrian conversation feels very entrenched. Um, it seems like I have no reference for what the discourse is, like what's the established discourse and how to position myself in the conversations about the U.S.'s relationship to the war. Where do you position yourself in relationship to reporting that? Um, I think, you know, Syria is has become one of the most complex conflicts in the world because it has become a proxy war. And the parties to the war all claim to be doing something on the right side of history. And so when you are seeing such a dynamic unfold, it's really hard to get people to see uh, the truths. And it's really hard to get people to see uh, the other side of the coin, so to speak. I know that sounds kind of cliche, but... Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to hold up a quarter and I were to divide this room on either side and I ask people to describe what they see, one side of the room will say, like, I see the head of, you know, an American president. The other side will say, I see the head or I see the, uh, the American eagle. And so right. both of those are true statements and they reflect very different realities of the same exact coin. And so I think the problem with trying to understand what's happening in, conf- in a conflict like Syria is that depending on where you sit, you are seeing only one reality. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. at the very core of it, as we were talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there is a humanitarian crisis. There are ordinary Syrians that are paying the price. And I think everyone wants to try to blame the other side for it. Obviously, if you are sympathetic to the uh, government and the regime of Syria, you believe that everyone on the opposition side are a bunch of terrorists, lunatics who just want to make Syria like uh, another failed state and Mm -hmm. and want to take it over. Okay, And there's obviously a valid criticism to that. But then it always kind of steers off into that's why we need to bomb everybody who's on the opposition and kill everybody who's in the opposition because the only way we've come to understand how to resolve a conflict like this is just to bomb our way out of it, whether 
it is the United States going after ISIS or the Syrian government going after opposition or the opposition going after the Syrian government. And I think that's why we're in this stalemate and it's fueled by people and parties outside of the conflict. Right. So I, I find it very disheartening what's happening in Syria. Um, but then again, y- there are several conflicts in the Middle East, whether it's Syria, whether it's Yemen, whether it's Libya, whether it's Israel-Palestine, um, whether it's Iraq, that are just absolutely soul-crushing to watch mm-hmm. uh, unfold every day. And I think that's why it affects us as a as a community back here because so many uh, of us and others that are you know, either immigrants or descendants of immigrants from that region, so committed to that part of the world, so invested in that part of the world, uh, and have a really high t- hard time reconciling so many of the conflicting principles that are actually uh, unfolding there. As a journalist who covers foreign affairs issues a lot, you're often traveling to really dangerous areas around the world. I'm curious what experiencing Ramadan in those areas is like for you. I've had so many incredible iftars during some of the most um, difficult times. I remember many times where you were breaking your fast on very simple you know, basic food. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily like the fancy or traditional right. iftars that we think of when we think of Ramadan, like a huge spread. Right. But you would see like all of the hotel staff and all of the people that were there would kind of gather around this table and uh, the basic food that we could kind of like come up with and, and get in the middle of a war zone and have these like very incredible, meaningful iftars. And everyone would kind of talk and laugh and rejoice about the fact that they made it through another day in the middle of a war zone. Right. Um, and you see this kind of like humanity and camaraderie and, you know, brotherhood that I think is deeply touching, deeply gratifying, and I think in so many ways humbling and really kind of helps you reset your um, emotional and spiritual compass to know what is important in life, right. not to take these moments for granted. And when you get out of these difficult situations, how to embrace those iftars when you are elsewhere and you do have that big spread of table in front of you to remember mm-hmm, what is mm-hmm. actually really important is not necessarily the food but the company. You know, that's I think one of the big things for a lot of people about Ramadan. It gives you a lot of perspective. Yeah, definitely. Because you're understanding definitely. it rejiggers your relationship towards food and yeah, towards absolutely. spirituality. And yeah, that sounds like it I is. think like and I think like you and a lot of viewers out there who who know this know that like fasting is never meant to be an excuse for you not to fulfill your obligations. Right. right. Um, I know sometimes you know in. Muslim societies, we tend to kind of like shut things down during Ramadan and everyone <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know, people are working half a day and right. people are kind of like skipping out on their responsibilities because they definitely are tired and, it, and it's a, a difficult month. But I think the opposite of that is true, that during these challenging times, you're also meant to think about why it is so important to continue with your responsibilities mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. fullest extent of your capabilities. Um, yeah, I mean, you're just reminding me of my time traveling to the Arab world where it's like a party after when Suhoor happens, yeah. you know, there's like, or when Maghrib happens, Maghrib to Suhoor yeah. is like, you know, it's very, yeah. all the shawarma shops are open. Well, the nice thing about the Gaza thing, I'll tell you, was that it was also during the World Cup in 2014. Oh, wow. So you can imagine what our nights were. I mean, we would we would be like all day out in the war zone, in the battlefield, we would have our iftars, and then we would try to catch a glimpse of one or two of the games that may have been played during that day. And, of course, you know, we'd never have a really good satellite reception or internet connection right, to watch right. the game. 
but it did make for a very nice atmosphere because all the foreign journalists were there. They want to watch it. All the uh, local staff that were working, the hotels and the restaurants where we were eating were there as well to watch it. So again, it was, a, it was a very beautiful moment despite the fact that it was a very trying and difficult summer. Right, right. Yeah, it's also like, um, you know, I was raised with a strong, uh, you know, sort of uh, anti-war principle growing yeah. up in Muslim communities and a lot of sympathy towards the humanitarian crisis is happening around the world. And it's been an interesting challenge for me as like somebody who's going, you know, has gone into journalism to like figure out like my relationship to these conflicts because it is deeply personal. Yeah. And I think I think mm. part, part of what frustrates me is like I look at some of my some, – I look at how it's so much easier for white journalists to like appear unbiased in yeah. a way. Whereas like it is real for a lot of Muslim folks who are in media and we also have to like tiptoe around like what we can say and what we can't say. I, I, I mean I think that is um... – with all due respect, I don't think that's healthy because sure. I think okay. I, I think as a journalist, you really you should remove your identity from it. I, I don't think it's healthy for us to get into the label of saying, "Oh, your identity." First of all, your identity is an asset to your ability to understand right. a story. Right. You, being a Muslim American from whatever background you come from, has certainly given you insights into a community, into a conversation, into a community that also gives you credibility in being mm-hmm. able to talk mm-hmm. about it. It certainly gives you legitimacy in being able to criticize it. Um, and it gives you a pulse of a community that perhaps an outsider may not have. But at the same time, you also have a responsibility to be able to report on a story as objectively as possible right. and not of course. Uh, try to shy away from it because this may make the community look bad or this is something that I don't want to talk about. Your responsibility ultimately is to speak truth to power, Mm -hmm. to help viewers understand or listeners understand what is happening on the ground uh, and not represent a side to a story. But um, I I think it's dangerous if we start going down the road of saying like, because you are X, you can't cover Y or because you are Y, you should only cover Y, you know, if if, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, Um, it's it's a challenge that I'm working with. I'm not like, I think I'm often very critical of the Muslim community here. And for me, my focus is more on American Muslim culture. And unlike you, I don't really cover like, you know, like wars in the Middle East, for instance. It's really not my topic. I'm careful about what I say as well because it would affect me deeply if like I was um, made to seem to like have a a bias on that. I'm not saying that like the stories are very different for me, but they also... Well, the principle is the same. I mean, you're going to be privy to two sides of a story in anything that you're covering domestically in the United States. And I think what is unique about your position is that you have, as I said... Uh, insights into the community mm-hmm. and you have the ability to bring that into the mainstream or into the limelight for people to see and understand and help have a better understanding. Right. You, you know, <laughs> when you hear politicians in this country make wholesale generalizations about the Muslim community, I know that affects you and certainly that right. affects us, right. you know, all of us. And so that's why we have the responsibility to speak up and say that's not right. We don't do these wholesale generalizations of other mm-hmm. uh, marginalized communities or minority communities. And so we should avoid that. That's not healthy for anyone. You know, It's not healthy for us to just have these like sweeping generalizations of right. a Muslim ban or a Muslim registry right. or um, these policies that are not nuanced and target a specific problem. Right. And I guess – Part of why I'm bringing this up as well is because I do uh, – while I completely agree with you, journalists should be as objective as possible. I think there's also this like old school journalist thing where it's like we need to have no identity. You know what I mean? And I think there's space for uh, like what I'm sort of trying to do here at least is like recenter the idea that like this audience might 
not be like a majority non-Muslim audience here for this podcast. It might be a majority Muslim audience yeah. and their desires and needs and what they want to hear and what they understand is very different from like what your audience might be, which and there's need for both in those spaces. Yeah, I mean, I think I, one of the things that I've always experienced in doing a lot of talks and speaking to uh, members of, you know, either the Muslim community or Muslim American community or Arab American community is, and a lot of this stems from their kind of historical understanding of what the media's role in society is. A lot of it stems from, you know, heritage and the traditions Mm -hmm. of media in the Arab world where we expect the media to just either regurgitate what the government says and we expect the media to reaffirm certain viewpoints and positions. And so I think when people transport those beliefs into a free society like the United States, there's sometimes is this belief that the media is kind of out to be against them, Mm -hmm. to not understand them, to be biased. Believe me, there is valid criticism to say the media sometimes fails in covering a story correctly and accurately and fairly and objectively or show both sides of the story, especially in places like the Middle East. But I think the more important thing is to get viewers and listeners to say, hey, the way to change it and the way to be to have a more, and it goes back to the original point that I made, was you have to have a diverse newsroom that right. reflects America. Right. And and for members of marginalized communities to say, I want to be a part of a news organization to go out there and report it. And I have found that the more diverse a newsroom is and the more diverse the ideas within a newsroom, the more you're going to get a holistic picture right. and a comprehensive picture of what is actually happening. If you just decide to recruit and hire a certain group, you're only going to get the viewpoints of that one group. So it's imperative on news organizations to go out, recruit, diversify, but it's also important for communities to speak up, participate, Mm -hmm. um, engage, not to shy away from, not to feel like, hey, my voice doesn't matter, so I'm not going to do it. Nobody's listening to me. Um, No, that that is probably one thing I always say to people, like, if you are a young um, aspiring journalist, go out there and become that journalist. I don't I, – one of the nicest things, people always kind of come up to me and say like, hey, you're reporting in, you know, Israel-Palestine or the Middle East and has inspired me and I want to become a journalist. Um, and I always say to them like, that's great. But if you want to be a ESPN sportscaster, do it. If you want to go <laughs> – yeah, if, you yeah, yeah. if you're a Muslim American you want to go cover E! News and, yeah. and cover the red carpet and you enjoy that, go do that. Yeah. And we if need you people cover, in all spaces. Yes, you, if you, you know? want to go cover weather in, in a local TV market because that's what you enjoy doing and, and you love that – do it because I think in its own way, it breaks down barriers um, like previous generations of communities have where people see you and relate to you and say like, oh, right. you know, Muhammad is like me. He loves, you know, the weather in the morning. He wants to, he wants to wake up and know what to wear. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. he wants to wake up and know what to wear like the rest of, of you know, America does. Right. Yeah. I think those moments of humanity really kind of bring us all together. And I think I always say to people, listen, go out and be what it is that you want to be. And again, you and I probably know that, and sometimes in our communities, that's hard. Our parents expect us to be lawyers, engineers, doctors, what have you. And they want us to succeed and they want us to be the best at what we want. And so sometimes the road to that success is very difficult. And like all the, all the, you know, in my experience, a lot of the uncles and aunties complain about the way the media is, totally, is totally. portraying us. And the only way to get our voices in the newsroom and, and the media cycle is to be in the newsroom. Exactly. And, you know, prevent exactly. some of those like those real stories about, yeah. <laughs> yeah. about uh, Muslim babies overtaking the UK <laughs> from, you know, not being published. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Eamon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, Where can people find you and your work? 
Uh, people can watch me every morning on MSNBC from 5 to 6 a.m. Eastern Time. You can watch me Sundays at 5 p.m. and watch me throughout the day sometimes as well on big stories, uh, international stories. And uh, you can follow me on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We try to keep it uh, diverse, you know, <laughs> flood the zone, as they say. You're a hardworking man. Thanks Thank for you. joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. This episode was produced by Megan Dietrich, Rona Akbari, Julia Ferlin, and me. Additional production support from the Pod Squad. Our music is by the Caminas. Find them at caminas.bandcamp.com. You can find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads and on Tumblr. The show is also on Twitter and on Facebook. And you can find all of our videos on our Facebook page. Email us at something at BuzzFeed.com. Find my writing at BuzzFeed.com. Leave us a review on iTunes so more people can find us. Please send us emails and talk to us. I'm Amadal Yakper. Thanks for listening.